Welcome to the For the Church podcast, another great gospel-centered resource from Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Jared Wilson, and we are blessed and highly favored to have the gospel puma himself with us today, the right Reverend Matt Chandler. Matt, how are you? I'm good. That's more titles than I think I've ever been in in front of my name. (laughs) Well, you deserve them all and, and then some. Matt, well, I that. Thank you. <laughs> Matt is the lead pastor of the Village Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex of Texas, one of the most influential churches in the United States. He's a popular conference and event speaker and the author of a few books, including The Explicit Gospel, Creature of the Word, Recovering Redemption, and most recently, The Mingling of Souls. Matt is married to Lauren, and they have three children, Audrey, Reed, and Nora. Matt, um, I think um, quite a few people who follow your ministry are probably p- uh, pretty familiar with your testimony. Perhaps uh, some of them are not, but I wonder if you could kind of share with us um, in that uh, biography your sense of calling to ministry. How did you know uh, that the Lord wasn't just calling you into the kingdom, but to actually um, to lead, to preach and teach? Yeah, it, it actually was a calling that took quite a bit of time and, and probably... Uh, probably was present before I kind of surrendered to it in that it, it seemed like preachers and pastors to me were guys that looked strange in jeans. <laughs> and so I couldn't quite see myself becoming one. Um, but, but really what had happened is I was, I was discipled before my conversion uh, by the guy that led me to the Lord. Man was very adamant about me being in the Bible, about answering my questions, encouraging me to ask other questions, and then helping me find the answer to those questions. Um, and so one of the things I realized after my conversion is that pretty quickly I knew quite a bit more than, uh, probably because my natural skepticism knew quite a bit more than some people who uh, I knew were Christians and had grown up in church. So that, that I became in a very real way very quickly, probably quicker than was healthy, um, the, the guy that people came to to ask questions and to... Um, uh, to get clarity around something they were wrestling with, which then fuels my, at that point, insatiable desire to know and understand more about who the Lord was, what He's like, uh, what was the right answer to this question. And so that, that kind of fuels my study. And so this is going on for several years um, where I'm just kind of the answer guy for people. Um, and if I didn't know it, I, I would say I don't know, or I'd go and, and dig around and, and try to find the answer. Um, and then that led into... Um, teaching just little things here and there. So I'd have a group of four or five friends that would just have a bunch of questions and we would just begin to get together and I, and I would teach four or five guys, which um, then it, it began to be affirmed in me that I had a gift uh, in that area. And so at the time I was at uh, First Baptist Church of Texas City, Texas, um, and, and, and the, the youth pastor there and several of the pastors there really began to affirm that calling on my life, and so I got to, and if, if they're listening to this and they're Baptist, they'll so appreciate this. I, I got to preach um, at Youth Weekend at First Baptist Church, um, and so spoke at that, and then immediately after that began to teach um, in our um, children's ministry. So I had a class of fourth grade boys uh, that I taught, and then um, I, I moved up to um, teaching the kind of big group at Children's Church, which was um, and I, I still to this day say, man, if you can teach the Bible in a compelling way to first through fifth graders, then you've got all the raw tools you need um, to continue to teach the Bible for a long period of time to whoever will listen. Um, and so really it was 
in that season that that those that group of pastors um, and and lay men and women who are heavenly evolved in the church began to affirm in me God's call on my life. Um, but still, I was resistant in that at that point in time, and maybe it was just how small my view of things was. Um, at that time, you could be a lead pastor. You could be an education minister, you could be the music guy, or you could be the student pastor. And, and really, that, that's all there was. There, there was a lay guy that was kind of handling um, college singles. There was, you know, it, there just wasn't, for me, I couldn't quite find what, what I was compelled and drawn towards on a, on a kind of church uh, organizational structure. And so, man, I just kept doing what I was doing with through teaching whenever I got the opportunity, serving in the local church. And it wasn't really until I was in college uh, and I was leading um, a large Bible, ecumenical Bible study um, in the vein of like Breakaway at Texas A&M. Uh, I think they were everywhere. Um, it wasn't passion, the choice that Louis Giglio was doing at Baylor in those days. And so here I was leading one of those um, serving at a church called Pioneer Drive when uh, a young woman asked me uh, when I had accepted my call to ministry. And and honestly, the question, even though I'd been in the Christian community for several years, the question took me off guard because I don't know that I'd ever thought, hey, this is a call, as much as I just considered this to be something I enjoyed doing, I was good at, um, and, and loved to kind of participate in the study and the ringing out of the Word of God to others who are hungry to hear it. And um, so that that call, that her question that night kind of haunted me for a couple of days, and, and I had to wrestle with the Lord on what that meant. Uh, what does it mean uh, to be called to vocational ministry? And so uh, I, I just decided I was going to stop trying to answer all the questions before I took some steps of faith, so changed my major um, from political science to... Um, theology and finished my degree in Abilene uh, to get a Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies and uh, just one step at a time. So that that was that that's the medium version, middle version uh, of my call to ministry. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it. Um, you know, a lot of guys are are looking perhaps for some sort of you know special revelation call, and a lot of times it's it's just this, this providential affirmation of being found faithful, you know, walking into the yeah. opportunities that are there um, for you. Well, I would say it's the primary way, right? Yeah. Like, it's, like I'm, I'm going to be skeptical of your revelation from the Lord if there's no real acts of service embedded in a local context in your life. Right. Yeah, I was going to say, like, last, uh, just a couple of months ago, I remember hearing Jonathan Lehman speaking to um, elder training and how they don't really have an, an on-ramp um, for eldership, like there's some course or, or training program, but they actually, you know, look to see who's who's serving, who's qualified, you know, currently um, in their congregation, and, and hasn't been waiting for, you know, um, you know, here's the track for eldership, but is uh, you know has just been sort of walking faithfully um, in the opportunities that are before them, and I just thought that was a really wise um, way, uh, you know, to gauge qualification in a sense. Yeah. So if there's a young guy out there, you know, who's listening and he's really, you know, sorting through this, he's thinking about seminary or maybe he is in seminary, um, you know, he's got some folks in his church who have affirmed, you know, a, a gift for teaching, that sort of thing. How would he know? I mean, what are some questions he could ask himself or things to sort through, um, you know, to know if he's, if he's you know, so-called called into ministry? 
Yeah, so I, I think you've already kind of highlighted what, what I think the guy needs. One, that, that he's, he faithfully has, um, has been obedient to that compulsion to serve the body in whatever capacity. And then when others begin to come around and say, hey, there, there seems to be a real sense in which God's got a call in your life. We can see in you a zeal for the kingdom, a zeal for the people of God, a desire to serve them, a desire to shepherd well in this fear that you're in. Then, man, at that point, I think you just kind of surrender into the, the Lord has, has got a call on my life for, for whatever season that might be in. Um, because there, there's a guy that has done some landscaping stuff at, at my house, um, named Bob, who uh, felt called to vocational ministry in college and faithfully served the Lord for about 15, 20 years. And then, man, he would just swear out of obedience to the Lord. He resigned that position. He started up a landscaping company, and man, it is his ministry. And then he's still super active in organizations, one of which he runs, that operate overseas and, and does quite a bit of mission work around the world, particularly in South America and in Romania. And, and so, but he would talk about the vocational call uh, of ministry changed in his life. So if, if a young guy uh, has these voices speaking into him saying, we see this in your life, there's fruit in your life. It's evident that God's at work in these spaces. But then I think you surrender to that for a season um, and, and so the Lord kind of moves you in another direction. Yeah. No, it's certainly um, you know true in my own life as well, the, the, the transition out of the pastorate um, to work at Midwestern. It was sort of, you know, am I not in ministry anymore? Am I, you know, am I being faithful to the call, whatever that is, that sort of thing, this thing that, you know, I... I believe the Lord was, you know, showing me when I was in junior high, you know, how yeah. you know, how clear could that have been anyway, you know, sort of thing. <laughs> well, especially now, you, since I know you, you've got a junior high kid, right? That's uh, right. Actually older than that now. Yeah. But, you know, what do you know in junior high? Some right. things for sure. Yeah. Hey, let's take a coffee break here and hear from our host, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Midwestern College is preparing and equipping the leaders of today and tomorrow. Our students continue to be agents of change both in the United States and around the world. The unique community environment at Midwestern College fosters spiritual, personal, and academic growth as students deepen their understanding of the Word of God and the world He created. With our dual degree option, students can get grounded in the truth while getting ready for the marketplace. Our Accelerate program allows students to pursue both their Bachelor of Arts and their Master of Divinity simultaneously in one intensive five-year program. Midwestern College, both residential and online degrees available. Midwestern is the sensible option for preparing and equipping the leaders of today and tomorrow. Find out more at midwesterncollege.com. Now, back to the podcast. Hey, um, let's uh, shift gears here just for a second. Um, I, you are, um, I think, without a doubt, or at least according to um, most of my peers and um, those uh, in the younger generation, uh, one of the go-to preachers for a generation, and I, I just want to peel the curtain back a little bit. I don't mean to puff you up, but let's peel back the curtain a little bit. Tell us a little bit about the nuts and bolts sermon preparation process uh, that you go through each week. Well, I think the question's always hard, so I always want to kind of give it uh, a bit of an asterisk before I, I get started. I, I think the thing <laughs> to remember is if you would have talked to me about sermon prep um, 10 years ago, it would have looked very different than sermon prep looks today. Uh, mainly because sure. the size of the village church enabled me to be highly specialized. And so, whereas 10 years ago, I mean, I'm 
setting up chairs and I'm making sure, you know, Sunday school classrooms are clean. And I'm, I mean, I, I don't inhabit that space in any other way other than to encourage the men and women who do those things at uh, the village now. And so I, I have been freed up um, to lead and to study and to prep in ways that I think most pastors would love the opportunity um, to do that. And so, um, man, I, I'll just kind of walk you through um, my week. Um, so, so we're just kind of brass taxing it here. Um, today is a day in which I will return to um, some rough outlines that I turned in to our comp staff. See, this is, I even feel stupid talking about this because I'm like, I know some guys are like, what? A comp? What, what's a the comp, comp staff, staff is, right? Yeah. So, the comp staff is Judith, who works in the front office. Yeah, that's right. It's you, you know, <laughs> printing something, some image offline, or trying to figure out how to print that image offline to throw up on a PowerPoint slide, maybe, on the weekend. But so that's why I'm like, this is, I feel almost embarrassed at this, but uh, I've got to turn in um, several months in advance a rough outline. So I'll just use the book of Exodus as an example. So... Uh, right now, we're in the middle of Exodus. I'll finish it, I think, in May, maybe June. And before we got started last August, uh, probably about six months before we got started, I turned into our communication staff a rough outline of the book of Exodus and my plan on, on how I was breaking down the book and preaching it. Um, the understanding is that that's wet cement, and that will always be wet cement until we're done but it gives them a rough outline of where I'll be, what the themes are, and and a little bit of the exegesis, how I'll approach it. So things like um, when you do the Ten Commandments, are you going to do tablets? Are you going to do five one week, five the next? Or are you going to um, do all ten of them at once? And so things like that are what I'm informing them of. Um, here's the rough outline. So I turn that in, and they begin to build curriculum and classes around that. So we're going to kind of unify as a church this whole year around the book of Exodus. So our classes are on that. Any of our training program initiatives are around that. Uh, everything we're doing at, at the Village Church this from August to May is Exodus. And so Com gets to work building all of that out. Um, and, and then from there, I will... Um, I will have a day once a month where I look over the month, look back over those outlines and write some things out that, that I want to make sure I revisit because of where we are in the life of our church right now. Um, and then if we get now down to the week, um, today is a day where, um, man, I, I will, I'll, I'll take a, uh, that old rough outline. I will begin to revisit those notes. I will begin to write some things out in regards to trying to get some clarity around the order and flow of the text. Exodus is especially challenging because of how big the chunks are um, in regards yeah. to how I've outlined it. And so I, I didn't want to be in Exodus for four years. I know for some guys that's a badge of honor. You know, I preached through Exodus for 15 years. Uh, I, I didn't want to quite approach it like that. I wanted it to be um, clean enough for them to get a sense of the book over the course of a year. And so on Monday, I'll work through what will turn into a rough outline. Tomorrow, um, I sit down with um, what what is, is probably can just be called a service planning meeting. We'll walk through the liturgy for the weekend. Um, and so I'll walk through my points. We'll work through um, all sorts of things, from the announcements, where they go, to the songs and the flow of our service. 
entire day Thursday is blocked off called a study day. So if we could pull up my calendar right now, my calendar would show that from um, 9 in the morning until 4 or 5 in the afternoon, it's nothing but study. And and that day is when I want it in my gut by the time I leave. Yeah. So when I leave the office on Thursday, uh, I want to already begin to feel like I'm about to pop and um, and need to get this out of me. And then, man, on Friday, I'm mulling it over. And then on Saturday, I'm we have a 5 o'clock service on Saturday. So I'm back up at my office by 1 o'clock usually on Saturdays. And then Saturday is that 1 to 4 o'clock when I pray with our staff is, uh, I think I heard Alistair Begg say, uh, that's when you know you, you pray yourself up. And so those few hours, that that's what I'm doing. I'm just asking the Lord uh, to move powerfully through the proclamation of the Word. That I know I can be convincing, I know I can be persuasive, but I also know where I convince and I persuade it rarely leaves the parking lot. But if the power of God would move in the preaching of the word, like he promised it will, then, then men, lives could be transformed forever. Generations might change. And, and so, um, and I'm praying through that. I've got what we call my care list that sits right beside me, uh, while I'm praying for that. That's anyone at the village church who's in, uh, any type of care situation. So maybe their marriage is on fire. Maybe somebody in their family is sick. Maybe it's everyone at the village church who um, is in a tough spot. And so that that care list and that time of prayer really just kind of put me uh, and moved me, sort of moved me to the point where, man, I am really, really excited to preach the Word of God in the hopes that it bears the kind of fruit that, that lasts forever. Um, and so I'll preach the 5, I'll preach the 7 15, uh, and then I preached the two Sunday morning services, and that that would be. Uh, I don't know if that's brass tacks enough. Feel free to to ask any question yeah. you want as a follow up. If, if if I'm not hitting where you think it'd be helpful for me to hit, but but that's kind of the process here for me. No, that's great. So when you you know take um, you know to the pulpit, do you have uh, paper? Do you have an um, iPad? What I do bring you take my iPad, uh, and I bring my Bible. For a while there, I just brought my iPad. And then I wanted yeah. I wanted the men and women at the village to always see me holding my Bible and reading my Bible. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with reading the Bible from the iPad. I mean, it, it's the same version on my iPad as I'm holding in my hand. But there's something about, for me personally, about the kind of tactile nature of the Word of God in my hand. And so maybe I'm old school, but I, like I still I still want a paper book. I don't I don't really like reading books digitally. Um, and, <laughs> right. and so I, I walk up with my Bible and an iPad and, and that's how Is I've it a man- been preaching yeah. with the iPad now for probably five years. Yeah. Is it a manuscript or do you um, take an outline? It's, it's a mixture of both. So there's manuscript and outline in there. And then I've color coded them. Yeah. So the scriptures are in red, even if Jesus didn't say it. Um, illustrations <laughs> are highlighted in blue and quotes are in green. Man, I just, you know, I find this fascinating. I think a lot of preachers do as well, just the kind of, you know, um, you know, tricks of the trade, you know, sort of thing. Um, you know, when I see guys with colored outlines, like it completely disorients me, just throws yeah. me off. I think it would be confusing. <laughs> it is. But the fact that it works for certain guys, you know, the cues that are there, the visual cues, I find really fascinating. It, to me, the whole thing's fascinating because I know guys, I mean, they manuscript and they'll 
Bill Stickett. I mean, every word, Bill Stickett. Yeah. Uh, but manuscripts are disorienting to me. Uh, so. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen. Have you seen Keller's? I'm sure you have. You seen yeah. Tim Keller's manuscript? <laughs> like, I, I don't. That's disorienting. I, I mean, I, like, I don't even know what would come out of my mouth. I mean, I could stand there and read it. I mean, which, I mean, but Keller can get away with that. I mean, Keller, it's right. like your grandfather's talking to you about some experiences he had in World War II. You're just going to drink it in. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> okay, so, all right, speaking of this tactile cue, I think what you said was really important. Um, you know, what is on our stage, what's in our in our building and in the physical space, communicates something. It may question. not be the most important thing. You know, we certainly don't need to be, you know, dogmatic about those things, but but everything is 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 saying something. So speaking of this sort of tactile uh, experience, um, let's talk about multi-site for okay. a second. Um, you know, Stetzer calls multi-site the new normal. I think he's right. Uh, for how long, I'm not sure, but he just we see. I think as of 2014, uh, there are 8,000 multi-site churches in the United States, and something that I have found really interesting is over the last few years, more and more uh, smaller churches adopting the multi-site strategy to reach these neighborhoods around them. I can tell you, you know, when I was in Vermont, in this little town of 600 people, the way that we were planning to plant in the next town over um, was a multi-site strategy. It would essentially be an extension of of our own church. So um, wave of the future, I don't know. But why would a a smaller church adopt multi-site strategy? But before you get to that, just tell us a little bit about your approach, the village's approach yeah. uh, to multi-site, because I think it's a little more circumspect than most people um, come at the problem. Well, we, we with great trepidation, moved towards multi-site. In fact, I think I wrote an article for the Nine March Journal. I think it was called Storms on the Horizon or yeah. something like that about my skepticism about multi-site mm-hmm. and, and multi-site as I had seen it to that point. And uh, I think if, if you looked up that article, some of what I was worried about is actually starting to come true. Um, but for us, uh, we, we do things a little bit differently. So we are multi-site. We have five sites. Um, each of those sites has their own elder board. And each of those campus pastors preach 14 times a year and are on our central elder board. So they're not MCs. They're not just kind of hosting and handing out coffee and donuts. And I know I'm not trying to be offensive. So if someone's <laughs> listening to this, I'm like, well, I can't believe you're characterizing. I don't. I don't know what people who are listening to this do. I'm just saying what we have done is that those guys are clearly uh, leading at a high level, responsible for almost everything that's going on at that campus. And then our end goal is to roll off of those those campuses to be autonomous churches. Um, and, and so we've started that process. I'm really hopeful. Um, at this point, we've now decided that we won't add any more campuses. And so now we're looking to roll off those four campuses and, and then just be back to the village church, uh, that's in Flowermouth. And so that's been our, um, our kind of methodology, um, for, you know, the last eight, nine years. Uh, we have rolled off campuses. Those campuses have done the Seeding me well, um, and and it, it became more of a church planting strategy for us. It, it was never kind of a long term desire to grow this kind of epic empire. It, if anything, it, it it still has a lot of faults that I think people are either nervous to talk about because of what appears to be a, a great deal of fruit, 
And so, yeah, it, that's, that's how we've approached it, Jared. Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm in a normative-sized church or a smaller church, and I'm kind of weighing the pros and cons of this thing, what are some of the pros? Like, why would a smaller church adopt a multi-site strategy? Well, and that's the, uh, you know, I don't even know that I could answer that question. We, we moved towards multi-site because we were planting churches, and we could not keep up with rate of growth. Um, right. And then we were contacted. We didn't go out and look. We were in the middle of something that um, that, that we had started. We were a very fast-growing, very young church. So I think that where you know people want to think that's a really sexy place to be in, it's honestly, if you're serious about pastoring and shepherding God's people, a terrifying place to be. Um, I mean, you, you don't really know what's coming in the door. Um, you, when all said and done, uh, you're broke. Um, and so here we were, a church of three or 4,000, growing by over a 1,000 a year, and had the budget of a church of about 800, 900. And it wasn't that they weren't faithfully giving. It's just the season in their life they were in it was all entry-level, first job, making 32 a year, trying to get by, you know, maybe just got married, maybe a single. Um, and so we couldn't, we couldn't buy anything or build anything, and, and we had this church from um, 20 minutes north of us, where we had several thousand people living, um, offer to give us their building because the university that it sat near um, had filed eminent domain to take the building from them because they knew they were down to about 20 people and that the building was starting to fall apart. So the university wanted to bulldoze the thing and make a parking garage. And the older saints there were just heartbroken and came to us. So we offered them um, people um, and pastors and um, that we would encourage people to come up. We had some guys that we were training up and we'd love to send over there. And, and it was too little too late at that point as far as um, the university taking the building. And so that was our first multi-site experience. Uh, and, and then almost immediately I was in Bo Hughes' ear going, hey, what does this look like in five, six years? Why don't you think about um, rolling this off and becoming your, your own autonomous um, you know, church? And, and there's a variety of reasons that he was a bit anxious about that in that season, but eventually came around. Uh, but I, man, it, it, what drove us was we were habitually turning away from services. Um, they, I mean, we were running six services and turning away from all six of them, and we couldn't raise enough money to buy where we are. Uh, and so it, that, that's how multi-site was born at the village. Uh, yeah. cer- certainly not out of a uh, you know, evangelicalism, she's a funny girl, man. I mean, she's family, but um, she makes the touchdowns um, in in all the kind of popular media in our little culture. She she sets the touchdown as being things that don't make a lot of sense, but drive guys to kill themselves to score a touchdown. But I'm not sure that's God's touchdown. And I think yeah. multi-side is an example of that, where it's a tool that, that needs to be thought through very well before before you, you start throwing it around, unless you use a screwdriver to hammer in a nail. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know why you would if you're a smaller church. I'm sure somebody listening said a smaller church, and they could list out a long reason, long list of reasons why they do it, but I, I'm not familiar enough. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the few guys that I've talked to um, position it not as their service is overrun, um, you know, obviously because they're a smaller church, but 
more of the you know, the problem presented to them. Yeah, so a church in the next town over about to close its doors. So it's almost like a replanting situation yeah. where they come and say. And so it's almost this half measure between we don't have the resources to fully plant, but we can sort of share what we have and yeah. send, you know, and, sh- you know, that sort of thing. So centralized leadership, but, yeah. So I, to me, that, that stuff starts to sound more and more and more like a parish model right. of doing church than a true kind of multi-site right. model. Oh, that's good. But, I mean, that's a whole other discussion. Isn't it? it is. And we'll do that on on the next on the next time we talk to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Hey, let me ask you this. Okay, a lot of guys. Um, you know, I I serve here at Midwestern. We have a lot of guys here who are training for ministry. Uh, the things they talk about most are preaching. We we just talked about that. Uh, second most, building something. They want to be planters, replanters, what have you. Uh, we talked a little yeah. bit about that. What is it? Um, you know, what's one thing pastoral ministry is? that few people actually become pastors to do. If you ask the average guy why he became a pastor, he didn't say X, but it's actually hugely important for ministry. Yeah, it, it seems it, it seems that the young guys who kind of come through our internship and our residency program are surprised by just how much time you actually are spending with people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that sounds so dumb to actually say that now, 20-something years in the ministry. But the sheer volume of meeting with people, encouraging people, speaking life into people, rebuking people, the, the sheer volume of that, like that's the thing that you just don't hear a lot about. Um, and you certainly don't hear a lot about that in a positive sure. sense. You, you tend to hear about how, you know, the, you know, burnout among pastors are always being criticized. They're always being torn down. They're always, but man, I, I had this profound moment. Um, probably, gosh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago where Mark Dever was in town. Dever's a, a dear friend. And I, uh, man, we just met up for dinner. Uh, actually, it was a lunch. And I brought one of the other lead pastors of the village with me. And of course, uh, Mark always travels, uh, with a group. Um, and so he had a guy with him. Uh, and we just sat there and talked. And he was asking about the church and he was asking about, and, and so I had said it had just been an especially, um, difficult season where, you know, there was this situation and then I immediately go to this situation and then this blew up again and this. And I was in that stage of my life where I was trying to find balance. And I was talking to Mark about these things and, and Mark said, and this might be discouraging to people, but for whatever reason, it brought language and clarity to me that I needed. Where he just said, yeah, brother, this That's is right. the job. <laughs> you know, and like no one ever said that to me. Like, no, 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 you don't get balance. Balance requires everything to be static. Ministry will never be static. It will always be moving. It will always be fluid, just like your family. Just, I mean, everything's going to be moving. So you're not seeking balance. What, what you're seeking is everyday faithfulness, obedience, over the long haul, and let the Lord build. You rest in Him and be faithful today. Yeah. That's your job. No, and I think just, yeah. So that, that was a profound moment for me where I was able to go, okay, so I need to be faithful today. And so today, that means I need to be faithful looking over that old outline. I needed to be faithful in an early meeting I had earlier today with um, Rick Hawkins, my assistant. I needed to be faithful um, at lunch today with my wife where we talked through uh, a situation with a woman who was in a very difficult spot here at the village and then need to be faithful here on this call. 
um, faithful finish cleaning out my inbox and time to faithfully be a good dad uh, <laughs> tonight when he gets on. And then tomorrow, I got, I'll have new mercies when the alarm goes off in the morning. And once again, we'll start the process. I need to be faithful today. And that's all the Lord has for me. I think that's great. To, to love the sheep is, is you know, the, the profoundest thing. Yeah, yeah that, that's it. And, and to not see him as the obstacle that's getting in the way of whatever fantasy is in your mind that you think ministry yeah, actually that's so is. important. Matt, one last question. By the time this airs, people will know the answer, perhaps. Where's Tony Romo going to go? Oh, man. I Denver, don't know. Houston? Where's he going to go? I, I yeah. really don't know. I wish I did. Uh, I, I'd love to see yeah. him win a Super Bowl, and I'd love to see him retire. Yeah. So I'm, that's where I am as his friend. I, I would love to see him win a Super Bowl, but I'd also love to see him retire. It's a brutal yeah. game, and he's got nothing left to prove. I mean, his records speak for themselves, and uh, he's never had – he's had once in his whole career uh, a defense in the top 15. I mean, it's just you're not – you don't get to yeah. win like that. Um, and so, man, I don't know. We'll find out. I'll find yeah, out yeah, yeah. No, I've got so, friends and family in Houston who would love to have him, so it's, uh, it's a – Oh, <laughs> see, I think – that would be well, amazing. to keep him in Texas, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, not only that, but they've got the number one defense in the league with J.J. Watt injured. Yeah. Matt, thank you so much, brother. No, it's my pleasure. Anytime we can hang out, I love it. We've been speaking with the great Matt Chandler, and I'm sure it was a blessing to you as it has been to me. Please do take some time to visit thevillagechurch.net, thevillagechurch.net, and explore all the great resources available there for you and your ministry. And until next time, may Jesus be big in your church. You've been listening to the For the Church podcast, hosted by Jared Wilson, managing editor of For the Church, found online at ftc.co. This resource is brought to you by Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, Missouri, where we train leaders for the church.